you know, historically, a lot of utilities have done sort of backwards looking modeling as they're doing their risk assessments. And that's, I mean, the, the usefulness of that strategy is beginning to change and at different speeds throughout the country. But, um, you know, the, the past is not the same predictor of the future that it once was. And so I think it necessitates sort of a new approach to risk modeling that I think a lot of forward looking utilities are beginning to recognize. But I don't think that recognition is uniform across the industry. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 80th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we bring you a conversation from another esteemed journalist covering the energy industry closely throughout the country. Our guest comes to us today with some insights from her new book, where she provides a narrative analysis of the failures of Pacific Gas and Electric, stemming from years of regulatory oversight and grid disrepair leading to one of the deadliest wildfires in U.S. history and the deadliest in California. Importantly, we talk about how all of this played out and what lessons North Carolina can take away from this situation in context of our own natural disasters that we contend with in this part of the country, including flooding and hurricanes. Before we talk to our guests, though, we have a few announcements to share. Last week was Making Energy Work here in Raleigh, and what a time it was. We had the chance to hear from North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality Secretary Elizabeth Beiser, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, Representatives John Zoka and Kyle Hall, Senator DeAndrea Salvador, Peter Ledford and Zach Pierce with the North Carolina Governor's Office, and RMI's Ben Sororier, to name a few. There were a ton of other exciting speakers that span the entire network of clean energy in North Carolina and beyond that we were lucky to be able to feature as well. Some overarching themes of this year's conference included the implementation of the IRA and how that will play out at the North Carolina Utilities Commission, along with the importance of equity, diversity, and inclusion considerations as the clean energy transition continues to accelerate at an unprecedented pace. If you missed this year's conference, that's okay, because the 2023 version will be here before we know it. So make sure to subscribe to NCSEA's newsletters to get the updates on next year's conference along with all the other events we plan to host in 2023. Hot off the press, E2 and the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association just published our annual clean jobs report showing that North Carolina clean energy jobs grew by 4% from 2020 to 2021 to 103,854. And in that same report, It was found that North Carolina ranked number one amongst all states for rural clean energy jobs and that we ranked in the top 10 for clean energy jobs in the country. However, that same report showed that we have some work to do in workforce diversification with black and African-American populations, which were significantly underrepresented across the industry. For the full report, including a breakdown of demographic data and a deeper dive into specific sectors, check out the link in the show notes. And in other exciting news from North Carolina, Governor Cooper just signed Executive Order 271 calling for increased sales of medium and heavy-duty electric vehicles in North Carolina. 
Specifically, this order directs the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality to establish an advanced clean trucks program, requiring manufacturers to sell an increasing percentage of medium and heavy-duty ZEVs over time, and that the agency should propose a rule for consideration to the Environmental Management Commission no later than May of next year. This builds on Governor Cooper's goals established within a multi-state MOU signed in 2020 committing North Carolina to 100% of all medium and heavy-duty vehicle sales to be electric by 2050 and 30% by 2030. If the Environmental Management Commission approves the rules, North Carolina would be the seventh state in the nation to adopt this advanced clean truck framework. Okay, on to the show. As mentioned, we're excited to welcome on a guest who joins us all the way from San Francisco to highlight what the future holds for utilities when considering the increasing frequency and intensity of natural disasters and storms impacting all parts of the country. With that, I want to go ahead and jump right in to introducing our guest and get on to the show. Clean energy. Our guest has covered power, renewable energy, and utilities for the Wall Street Journal since 2018 and is based in San Francisco. Much of her work has focused on wildfires, droughts, and other challenges facing utilities in the West. Her coverage of Pacific Gas and Electric was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and earned a Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business reporting. She is also the author of California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and What It Means for America's Power Grid, a book in which we'll talk about at length on today's episode. Prior to joining the journal, our guest was a business reporter at the Houston Chronicle and before that covered transportation for the San Antonio Express News. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Catherine Blunt, reporter with the Wall Street Journal to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Catherine, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. So you recently released a book titled California Burning about the long-brewing situation that played out with Pacific Gas and Electric out in California that resulted in some massive wildfires leading to numerous deaths, most notably in Paradise, California. Before we talk about the grander implications and themes within the book, could you talk about the backstory of what led to the situation with PG&E that ended with multiple criminal charges and, and some huge settlements? Yeah, so um, PG&E's had a number of significant issues over the years, but I think most relevant here is the series of very deadly and destructive um, fires that occurred in 2017 and 2018. Even service territory, more than 100 people died um, as a result of fires ignited by its power lines. And ultimately, um, as a result of these disasters, the company uh, owed an estimated $30 billion in liability costs. It sought bankruptcy protection to sort through them, um, you know, all kinds of different claims, um, most, you know, so of course, very significantly claims from individual homeowners and business owners that lost an enormous amount. And I mean, the, the whole thing just had such major implications for victims' compensation, well, really the whole state of California. So it's a, it was, um, you know, a, a really consequential thing that happened in the last few years, and it's, it's, it remains ongoing. So in the book, you explore the intersection between utility regulatory structures and incentives and how that may have led to some of these massive safety oversights. So why didn't the utility pay more attention to the potential risks associated with their infrastructure and how it could lead to these massive wildfires? Yeah, there's a few points that are really key here. And I think, you know, most basically, um, it's 
important to keep in mind how investor-owned utilities like PG&E make money. They make money on large capital investments that boost the overall value of the systems that they operate. They do not make money on day-to-day operations and maintenance expenses. That includes inspections. That includes replacements of tiny little parts that could be vulnerable to failure. And so in this industry, the best financial performers are minimizing expenses to the extent that they can and freeing up that money to invest as capital. This theoretically can work well. Um, this balance you know, can be found, but PG&E did uh, an exceptionally poor job of, of balancing this over time. There was um, not only the fires, but also a deadly pipeline explosion in 2010 south of San Francisco. And investigations after both the campfire as well as the explosion revealed that the company had been doing too much to try to minimize expenses over the years. That resulted in reduced uh, frequency and thoroughness of the sorts of inspections it was doing of its equipment. And so as a result of that, it wasn't aware of the extent of some of the risks that it faced. And that was especially true in the case of the campfire. It was this very tiny hook holding up a high voltage wire that ultimately broke in half, uh, resulting in what became the deadliest fire in California history. And the company inspection practices weren't sufficient in evaluating the state of those tiny pieces of hardware. Um, They were maybe walking beneath the line or flying it quickly by helicopter, but they weren't getting close enough to know that that hook and others were on the verge of of failure. And there are some other factors at play, you know, and we are talking about regulatory, the regulatory construct here. I mean, theoretically, utilities should be subject to really close regulatory oversight of spending and, and system maintenance. Prior to the fires, the California Public Utilities Commission, it, it didn't really have the capacity to truly evaluate the safety of pg and system. The safety division was understaffed and, and underfunded pretty chronically. And uh, as a result, it was hard for the regulators to get a real handle on what was going on. There's a third factor at play here, and that's, I mean, it's, it's climate change. The company's service territory changed really quickly in a relatively short period of time as a result of severe drought that killed millions of trees. So the consequences of system failure became a lot greater. You know, the consequence of a single spark as a result of power line failure, you know, the the potential for fire spread became very great. And I think both both the company and the regulator underestimated the extent to which that change was occurring. Was there something inherently different about the culture inside of PG&E as compared to other utilities at the time leading up to these wildfires? Or was this situation solely a result of the market structure, the regulatory structures uh, that that governed PG&E? It's a a good question. And there's a few things that make the circumstances for PG&E a bit different than what other utilities faced as you really begin to see the challenges unfold. For one, you know, there was the California energy crisis of 2001 that resulted from kind of a botched deregulation effort and a, and a market that, you know, proved vulnerable to manipulation. And PG&E was the only one of the California utilities to seek bankruptcy protection after that. You know, the company emerged from bankruptcy very intent on reestablishing itself and, you know, regaining the goodwill of shareholders. And so it's probably fair to say that not every other utility in the country faced the same sort of you know, pressure around the same time because you know, utility bankruptcies are so rare. Um, you know, at the same time, too, and this is sort of an irony of the situation, PG&E, as well as the Southern California utilities, began contracting for large amounts of wind and solar power to help California meet some very ambitious carbon reduction targets. 
at the time they were doing this, 2005 and onward, wind and solar power were much more expensive than they were today. So some of these early contracts were very expensive and also served to kind of create another layer of expense pressure over time. So some of the challenges PG&E faces seem, I mean, suggest that the, the, the internal pressure was perhaps a bit different than what you might see within other utilities, but the inherent tension is there. I mean, across the entire industry. I mean, every utility company faces this challenge of balancing the expenses needed to maintain the system and specifically maintain system safety while also having the uh, the money needed to invest as capital to um, satisfy the shareholder base. And there, it's certainly true that some companies do this better than others. What lessons are at play here for other utilities across the country, especially those in regulated monopoly territories and IOUs like Duke Energy right here in, in North Carolina? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of takeaways. and But I think that, you know, to the extent that this tension, as we're talking about, is sort of inherent throughout the industry, I think it's, it's fair to say that the balancing act of, you know, striking the right balance between the private interests and, and public good uh, as it relates to safety and, and maintenance and, and good operations the challenge of doing so, I think, is is becoming harder in some ways, and also the consequences of the mismanagement of that are, are becoming greater as we become more reliant on electricity for all kinds of reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, the grid across the country, not just in California, is very old. It's becoming more prone to failure, you know, may need more of those little replacements on which utilities don't earn returns. It's just an expense. Of course, it, it needs large capital upgrades as well. You know, so you have an, you have an aging grid becoming more vulnerable to failure. And you have an additional layer of pressure in that we're beginning to see more severe weather events, many of which um, are being exacerbated by our change in climate. And so as a result, you know, with this new stress, utilities have to confront new risks and figure out how to manage those risks. And I think PG&E's story very clearly shows that if, if a company has a history of either mismanaging spending or mismanaging risk or both, becomes a lot more challenging to do this as the environment changes in unexpected ways. And, you know, I mean, maybe for, you know, a utility like Duke, I mean, some sort of catastrophic system failure probably doesn't result in major wildfires, but it maybe results in outages that last for days. And that has major economic consequences. That has health consequences for those that rely on electricity for medical reasons. And of course, it's just a major inconvenience. And it will only become more so as we, you know, add more electric vehicles to the grid more to electrify our homes. So that's why I believe, you know, the consequences of the, the failure are, are um, mounting. And, and you alluded to it, you know, North Carolina doesn't necessarily face the same wildfire risks as California, although we do contend with our, uh, our own, you know, natural disasters such as, you know, hurricanes and flooding. So, you know, taking the, the, the situation that's played out in California with, with wildfires, but, but, thinking about that in, in relation to other sort of natural disasters, are there, is, is there a possibility or potential for us to see similar situations play out in this part of the country, in the Southeast or in other parts of the country that happened in California, but for other types of natural disasters? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And so um, it, I, one example that I think is interesting is that Con Ed, which serves New, the New York area, New York City specifically, and some of the surrounding region, a few years ago, embarked on a, a climate study to determine how climate change could potentially affect 
its infrastructure with the goal to change its its asset management strategy, basically. And flooding is one of the key risks that they were looking at as in terms of how it could affect substations, which of course are critical to keeping the lights on. And um, determined that they could face storms of such severity that could really increase the risk of certain substations flooding that they wouldn't have thought would have flooded under other circumstances. And so they're trying to figure out how to address that. I think, you know, this speaks to the fact that, you know, historically, a lot of utilities have done sort of backwards looking modeling as they're doing their risk assessments. And that's, I mean, the the usefulness of that strategy is beginning to change and at different speeds throughout the country. But, um, you know, the, the past is not the same predictor of the future that it once was. And so I think necessitates sort of a new approach to risk modeling that I think a lot of forward looking utilities are beginning to recognize. But I don't think that recognition is uniform across the industry. One issue we we often see as well is the battle between, you know, ratepayers, ratepayer advocates, and the utility on large proposed investments to harden the grid and improve resiliency to prevent some of these future issues that we're talking about as it relates to natural disasters. In these cases, advocates in, in some cases will oppose these grid hardening uh, proposals due to large costs, rates of return, and potential impact to ratepayer bills moving forward. So how do you find the right balance to ensure adequate protections to the grid while maintaining affordable cost of service? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think like, you know, the the role of the ratepayer advocate is important in that it's certainly true that utility spending projects deserve scrutiny. And it's certainly not uncommon for utilities everywhere to propose projects that may not be the most prudent use of of capital, right? I mean, so it's it's it should be a discussion. But I think certainly in California and in other places, there can be a very staunch posture sometimes against, you know, any system spending. And and there needs to be substantially more for a lot of reasons to replace aging infrastructure, to prepare it for, you know, more extreme weather events and to support what's expected to be a lot um, higher demand on the system as a result of EVs and other things after, you know, two decades or so of plateau in demand as a result of energy efficiency and other things. So there's a lot to prepare for. And that it can't come for free. I mean, there's there's a lot of discussion about what this means for the consumer. And there should be, because it's a very relevant question, especially in this inflationary environment in which everything seems to cost more. But I also think that there's a kind of a practical reality to contend with that electricity and the provision of electricity in California and elsewhere is going to become more expensive. And I don't know if there's really any ways around that. So like as, as a, you know, as a total percentage of household spending, we're probably entering an environment in which electricity takes up more of the pie, so to speak. You see it with, with fuel costs, with just the cost of upgrading grid infrastructure. And I think for, for quite some time, we really took for granted that electricity, you know, was, was just there when we needed it and was something that we didn't think much about because it's been relatively inexpensive for such a long time. And now we're facing a lot of those consequences and, and, and I think of, of both fuel costs and of the need to upgrade infrastructure costs. So just in general, what's, what's the solution here to ensure that utility interests and that of the public good are more aligned to ensure things like this in California don't happen again? 
Yeah, the solutions question. I mean, if I had a good answer, I think I'd be in a different business. But um, anyway, I I, uh, I joke sometimes that um, very much a Captain Hindsight kind of role here. But um, um, no, I think that, you know, there's a lot of discussion after these sorts of disasters happen about whether like a different ownership model would be better, whether, you know, there's other sorts of ways to overhaul the business of a sort like you know uh, to you know to break up a monopoly like pg in some form or fashion and you know i think there's interesting points to be made about something that sort of removes the profit motive but it also introduces other problems and it doesn't solve certain problems in the first place like you know managing liability figuring out the best way to minimize risk in an inherently risky service territory and i think that you know, I mean, sometimes we've seen really dramatic efforts, right? I mean, you think about some of the issues of the, you know, 1970s onward really sort of created the deregulation push of the 90s. And that didn't solve a lot of problems either. I mean, it created these new markets and kind of created a new way of doing things, but those that has inherent challenges as well. So I think that we kind of with the exception of you know some changes in the introduction of more distributed generation, other technologies that can sort of maybe change or minimize the need for some of this large centralized infrastructure, for the most part, we're kind of going to be working in the parameters of what we have. So the question is like, you know, how do you make it better? How do you strengthen regulatory oversight? How do you maybe introduce new mechanisms for either cost sharing I mean, with with shareholders and customers or maybe securitization mechanisms that help manage costs better over time in different ways. I think there's a lot of really creatively minded people who are thinking about this and how do we thread the needle. But it's not an easy proposition. And I think that, you know, to some extent, we're going to be living with a few things for the foreseeable future, you know, greater risk, higher costs. We will see more creative ways to manage, manage it over time, but it's definitely a challenging period right now. And a few things that you mentioned there are, are things that, you know, we've we've seen recently come into play here in North Carolina as, as last year we saw uh, our big comprehensive energy bill, House Bill 951 passed that include provisions in there for coal securitization and performance-based uh, rate making uh, to, to help further uh, create some alignment there between the, the utility and, and rate payers, but there's still a lot of work uh, to, to be done on that front. And those those proceedings are now playing out at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. One thing you did mention was deregulation. And I feel like we're coming full circle on this now as a lot of uh, regions and markets, especially here in the Southeast, uh, after some of the most recent nuclear boondoggles we've seen play out in South Carolina and Georgia, uh, are, are really talking about and diving into deregulation. So what lessons can be taken from the California market into those conversations now playing out here throughout the Southeast. Yeah, totally. I mean, history repeats itself, right? And so like sort of um, some of the issues with building nuclear plants early on, some of the first, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure there's some example somewhere, but typically historically in the United States, we've not been able to build nuclear plants on time and on budget in general. I mean, there was a lot of overspending or, you know, unexpected cost overruns in the 50s and 60s that, you know, serve to create some real challenges for the regulators in terms of cost management, how you're going to protect the financial health of the utilities without overburdening customers. And then it's one of a number of factors that ultimately led to this deregulation push in the 1990s. 
you know, California, the California market design at first was, was very much flawed. Yes. Some of the circumstances that led to the crisis were, would have been difficult to predict, but, you know, other things, you know, could have been better from the outset. But I think, you know, the, I I kind of mull this philosophically sometimes. One of the lasting consequences of deregulation for PG&E was that and the other utilities in the state was that they would no longer have the same role in building power plants. So instead of going to build the wind and solar farms that would help with the state's carbon reduction targets and earning a return on them, they would be contracting for that power, which is treated as an expense and passed on to consumers and ultimately kind of had the ironic consequence of, of introducing new cost pressures um, in the way they manage the system. I think, though, that maybe the kind of the more relevant conversation about deregulation maybe centers on Texas, you know, after what we saw with the Texas freeze. And, you know, I think that there's a legitimate criticism to be made of the fact that in this energy only market in which the power producers were paid only for their output and nothing else, you know, no sort of reliability construct at all. No one wanted to invest to be able to run a power plant in sub-freezing temperatures because it happens so rarely. But we've also seen very clearly that the, the sort of freeze that happened in, um, you know, February of 2021, it did have a climate signature, you know, it was, it does, it is suggestive of a changing climate. And so, you know, how do you sort of properly incentivize the sorts of investments for contingencies that once might've been considered very rare, but maybe more frequent going forward. And it's a, I think it's a sort of a market design issue that's playing out across the entire country. You know, the idea is you want to have competition in the lowest cost power, but maybe the lowest cost power isn't exactly what we need right now as things change. So it's a, I, I know that was a, a, a long-winded answer, but I hope that maybe raises some of the relevant questions. Yeah. And those are a lot of the questions that have been coming into play here recently in, in North Carolina now, especially that we're going through the process of uh, developing a, a carbon plan uh, for the utilities to reach some of their carbon reduction goals of 70% by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050 and talking about affordability and talking about how we how we harden the grid and prepare for additional uh, generation resources on the grid and considering other things like market structures as well. There's a lot of conversations taking place uh, across North Carolina and in the Southeast in this space. So, uh, Catherine, I really want to thank you so much for for joining us today on, on the podcast and want to encourage all of our listeners to uh, go out there and pick up your book, which is now available, California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid for uh, for the, the narrative history on what happened with PG&E and how that relates to a lot of other utilities across the country and even specifically here in North Carolina. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. My key takeaway from today's episode is the necessity to further align utility and customer interests to ensure the utility still has a mechanism to profit while doing what's best for the ratepayer. We're seeing some of these conversations take place right here in North Carolina, stemming out of the Clean Energy Plan facilitated by NCDEQ, where some of the recommendations included performance-based regulations that would incentivize the utility to focus on energy efficiency, keeping rates low, and reducing emissions. These are all incredibly important areas for the utility to focus on while ensuring they maintain reliability and safety, especially with the threats of more and stronger hurricanes hitting the coast of North Carolina. 
something that we've definitely seen over the past few years with storms like Hurricane Matthew and Florence. All right, and you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout, at Matt Abel, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, along with your thoughts on today's episode. And episode 80 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the Friends of the Pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.